Thank you for pressing play. Welcome to Lockhead on Marketing, a number one charting podcast for marketers, category designers, and entrepreneurs with a different mind. Chris is gallivanting about the seven seas on his pirate ship again this week, so we're bringing you an episode of Starting Greatness with Mike Maples Jr. titled Untold Lessons from the SVB Bank Run. In this episode, Chris joins Mike and Floodgate co-founder Ann Mirico and drops some serious knowledge about how to batten down the hatches when your company is in rough seas and the shore is over the horizon. And when you're done imbibing this tasty treat of a podcast, go to audible.com and search for Category Pirates. We've been hard at work turning our Substack newsletter into audiobooks that you can enjoy on the road, at the gym, or lounging on the poop deck of your very own schooner. And if you're not already subscribed to the newsletter, then get your booty over to CategoryPirates.com and sign up today. So, yo-ho-ho-hey-ho, let's go. This is Lockheed Marketing, the podcast that helps you develop the lens for what makes legendary marketing legendary. Hosted by Christopher Lockhead, three-time CMO, godfather of category design, and a high school dropout, who the Marketing Journal calls one of the best minds in marketing, and The Economist calls off-putting to some. There's, there's sort of the whole world you could see on Twitter and WhatsApp groups. And then there was this like separate reality I was living with my founders. And the founders that I, I got to work with were demonstrating such courageous decision-making, such incredible competence in that moment. I was really excited for the people that we get to work with. As everyone in the startup landscape knows, the run on Silicon Valley Bank and the ensuing fallout created huge ripple effects. For a window of time, the situation was quite dire for startups from a bizarre set of circumstances. Yet in spite of the noise, the fear, the uncertainty, and yes, finger-pointing, at Floodgate we noticed something remarkable. Founders behind the scenes showed great courage, focus, urgency, and empathy. They were greatness personified. They showed us all how a crisis can make us better in the future if we learn from what just happened. Let's talk about why. Welcome to Starting Greatness, a podcast dedicated to ambitious founders who want to go from nothing to awesome super fast. When you're a startup founder, you have to channel your inner James Bond, your MacGyver, your Wonder Woman. I'm going to help you win by curating the lessons of the super performers, but before they were successful. So without further ado, ignition sequence start. Let's get started. I've invited Floodgate partner Ann Mirako to the show so that we can compare notes and get a more complete picture of what we saw in the run on SVB and its aftermath. Some of you might be familiar with Ann already. She co-founded Floodgate with me and has been on the Forbes Midas list six times. I'm lucky to have worked with her for 15 years now, and it was fun to discuss key learnings. Let's catch up with her. And Mirako, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here, finally. <laughs> Took a crisis to get the invite, but we'll figure it out. Yeah, it's been a pretty eventful couple of weeks <laughs> uh, with this SVB bank run and the aftermath and the recriminations and the accusations and the who's to blame. Hand-wringing, Twitter sphere stuff. 
Yeah. I think also we kind of need to show some humility here. Like, I don't know about you, but I didn't see this SVB thing coming. My entire, my entire adult life, SVB has been like the bank that people in Silicon Valley use. Yeah. It's not something I've ever questioned. In fact, you know, that's why, that's why we would tell all of our founders, like it's a good place to put your money. Yeah. And it's, and it's weird because I don't even remember, I don't even remember telling founders that, right? Like I remember like a lot of times when we would fund a company and ask for their wiring instructions, they already had an account at SVB, right? Yeah, yeah. And so like the idea that there was going to be a run on SVB, that was not on my dance card for 2023. And maybe, maybe that makes me not very prescient as a VC. Maybe I'm not a, maybe I'm not a globally recognized financial risk manager, but like, I got to say nobody else I know who's sophisticated was like planning for this either. I mean, some people saw it coming earlier than others, but like if they saw it coming earlier than others, it was like two or three days before other people saw it coming. In my experience, we were just kind of on the front line with these founders, just figuring out, how to potentially put Humpty Dumpty back together again, right? It wasn't, it, you know, not not a lot of folks had time to express their opinions about who's to blame in 140 characters or less. No, it was a lot of Zooms and phone calls and text messaging just to figure out next steps. Yeah. And the other thing, though, that I think resonates with me that's different from what some people may have seen is how much agency the founders had. And how how incredibly lucky I felt to work with people who just took extreme ownership of the situation. And, um, you know, people talk like we VCs direct people to do things versus not to do things. But that wasn't my experience of the reality at all. My, you know, my experience was that these people stood up and rose the occasion in ways that even transcended anything I would have expected. Yeah, it was interesting. I was uh, in the middle of the weekend, like I, I got off the phone and I, I turned to my husband and I was like, I just, I feel all of my stress in my stomach. So I had like this massive stomach ache. And, but as the day went on, as I communicated with the founders, I just, I, I started to feel so much better, not in the sense that the situation had changed at all, but I felt wonderful about the investment decisions that we had made. And in the crucible of that kind of crisis, you really start to see what we mean when we say greatness is a decision. And, uh, it was, it was incredible to see. So what, you know, what, what, what was your experience of like the run on SVB and like interactions with founders and what you saw? I think for me, there's, there's sort of the whole world you could see on Twitter and WhatsApp groups. And then there was this like separate reality. I was living with my founders and the founders that I, I got to work with across the floodgate portfolio were demonstrating such courageous decision-making, such incredible competence in that moment. I was really excited for the people that we get to work with. There was a really good example of great contingency planning and sensitivity analysis that you've brought up. It's Saturday morning, and most people are just panicked and freaking out tweeting about the Fed needs to do a bailout. And so Michael Gao from SmarterDX reaches out to you. 
Saturday morning. Yeah. I got a text from him okay. is what happened. Yeah. And what did he, what did the text say? He was like, should I get out? <laughs> should I get out of Should SVB? I get a, a SVB? Is this SVB thing for real? And then I sent him an email back saying it is for real. So what's up with that? What did he do? So I think what was most impressive about working with Michael was that he was, he was zero based about everything. Right. Okay. And what I like about that was um, he came back to us, not with questions, but with scenarios and specifics about what the situation was. Yeah. And so there was uh, a proper level of paranoia, but not a lot of hand wringing. And what that manifests in is, you know, a day by day cash forecast an impact on growth versus investment analysis and emergency scenarios with access to cash at varying different points and what that impact would be on his business. I think I first became aware of the Silicon Valley Bank situation Thursday morning on Eastern time. Uh, you know, a, a bank run was not high on my list of risks to watch out for for <laughs> startups. And so unfortunately we didn't have another business account. Um, and by the time I was able to create that, um, and then sort of Thursday afternoon, Eastern time, uh, attempt to initiate a transfer. We know in, in retrospect that it was, it was too late. By Friday morning, it was apparent that, you know, the transfers that had not already gone through were not likely to go through. I think in that scenario, I uh, really began to evaluate kind of what this genuinely means. Um, like, what do we actually know about the situation? What can we be quite confident about? Um, and, and what's still unknown? And so it was pretty clear, even on Friday, that 250K would be accessible relatively quickly. You know, given the size of our company, that 250K would would cover us for a couple of weeks, but it became increasingly unclear um, what per per percentage of the deposits would be recovered and on what timeline. So of the remaining sort of cash in the bank, the assumption that we would get all of the cash back um, in a very short time frame uh, was, was pretty clearly not a good assumption. You know, of course, we still had a, a, a business to run um, so it was really Friday, kind of late night into Saturday, um, that I was able to sit down and start asking, okay, well, what if we get 30% back within two weeks and then 70% is held up in, you know, bankruptcy court and litigation and, you know, all of these unknown factors for the rest of time. What if the 30% even is not accessible, uh, from there, um, started looking at the company fundamentals. This is where one's story of gross margin kind of meets reality. Um, and you really need to start asking, okay, what is kind of the bare bones that we need to support um, sort of the customers coming in? And then what's the next level of necessity? Not just to support existing customers, but to support the sales that were already closing. I thought that was a really sort of useful exercise, not just for this crisis, but um, in general, because I think boiling down the numbers to those different layers of criticality 
where it was actually a really good way to understand um, sort of the business more broadly and, and sort of, you know, where we were along that uh, sort of capital efficiency um, curve. And so he, he came to you Saturday morning and said, okay, if we can't get our money out, these, these are the day-by-day ramifications. That's right. So payroll, sales commissions, uh, wh- whatever the case may be. Yeah. So starting off with, let's say, even if they're going to give us our, our capital back, we don't get it back for two weeks. What's the impact on payroll? How do we get through that? He's looking at exactly what is the dollars that needs to go into the business to keep things going, uh, keep the lights on, and has a clear sense of what are the must-haves versus what's the nice-to-haves. And there used to be this saying, like, cash is king. Yeah. And I really thought about that when talking to Michael. Okay. So he just and, – and so for learnings for founders then, he started out with the, the base assumption, let's say I don't get anything else back other than my insured deposits. Yeah. This is this is what the ramifications of that would be day by day. That's right. And then it's like, let's say that I get a subset of my deposits, or let's say I get all my deposits back, but this soon, you know, or much later. Right. These would be the ramifications. Is it, you know, in a month? Is it in six months? What if I don't see it for a year? Because, you know, back then in Twitter, people had all sorts of theories as to what's going to happen. And so instead of postulating about it on Twitter, He's actually putting it into a spreadsheet and figuring out how it's going to impact his business, his investors, and his employees. Yeah. And what I really respected about just the energy he brought to it was there was not even a trace of, woe is me. How did this happen? It was just like, here's the reality. Here are the different outcomes that might occur that I can't control. Here are the ramifications of each outcome and the decisions that we need to make. As, as you know, and um, I'm a clinician, and one of the things I've always found to be really interesting is, you know, like medical decisions can be really complicated, but when the person's heart is stopped, it actually becomes incredibly simple because there is only one thing to do with his chest compressions to, you know, mm-hmm. try to restart that heart. And it doesn't matter if you're the world's, you know, most famous cardiologist or uh, sort of a bystander walking by on the street. Here, it was a it was a real moment of clarity, which is uh, like, what is default alive for this business? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how do we get there? I think in some sense, I uh, sort of thinking about that, I uh, sort of wiped away a lot of distractions and, and a lot of potential, you know, Twitter doom scrolling uh, to really focus on what does default alive look at? And then, sort of what are various stages that we can go from there. And it's also with this underlying belief of, and this is what I liked about all the investors who are around the table, we're all saying, you know, it's a real intelligence check right now because what we realize is emotionally, we really believe in this business. We do not want it to go out of business. You know, it's like what my old boss, Ted Dintersmith said, you become very clear on whether or not this is business you want to own more of or none of. And like, in that moment, it was clear I wanted to own more of this business. But aside from that, like the reason why is because this business deserves to exist. And if you look at the numbers around customers and how he wants to grow the business, what are the investments to make? It becomes very clear in that kind of moment 
that this is the kind of business that ought to exist. And it was kind of a good example of, you know, increasing your conviction, right? The business already doing well. We already like the founder, like the company. But then the way that Michael acquitted himself in a very tough situation causes you to say, okay, maybe, maybe that's feeling kind of valid. That's correct. Yeah. I think so. The the two other things that that besides this day by day cash flow analysis is that analysis on the impact on growth versus investment. So it becomes clear when like you have you went from having a lot of cash to maybe not that much cash at all. Then you start to look at what is this dollar for? Is it for you know supporting the pipeline of growth of customers? Or am I investing into a future product? And again, there, Michael was crystal clear as to what each dollar was for. And so we can reallocate and move according to what we wanted this business to be. And then the third was this emergency scenario, which really looked at, you know, if we don't have two weeks access to cash beyond our $250,000 insured deposit, what happens if we don't have it for six months? What does it ha- what happens if you don't have it for a year? Well, that changes like, do you hire? Do you actually have to shrink your employee base? What does it actually mean? And what levers do you actually have? And he could, he could put those in front of the investors and then come back to us and say, okay, what kind of business do you want me to be? Yeah, I think it was clear over the weekend that. Even if we got 100% of our deposits back, the second order effects of, of this are, and at the time of us talking, you know, still remain largely unknown. Uh, an increase in risk, of course, um, tends to make people more conservative. Um, so all other factors being equal, like more variance is kind of equals less uh, sort of readily available capital, even if the expected value is is the same um, at the end of it. Really genuinely thinking through, okay, what is today, what is our core business? What are customers buying and how can we support that so that we can get paid by customers? How do we support that with the sort of least number of people possible? I think is a useful exercise for every business, even in non-crisis situations, because it's often the right thing to do to make additional investments into additional products, you know, into additional bets. But you should know that you're making supplemental investments um, outside of the core business so that you can appropriately evaluate your return on the supplemental investment. And you shouldn't kind of cognitively mix the resources one needs to grow the core business versus kind of make additional bets. The thing that I found impressive was how on it a lot of the founders were in terms of just moving quickly, right? As soon as they knew they had to do something, they moved quickly. But I think that maybe this is a maybe this is something that we can help founders with because I think in the aftermath uh we learned some things, right? And and fundamentally, especially in zero to one, a startup has one job to do, which is to get product market fit. And uh, a startup doesn't have a lot of time to be world-class experts in a whole lot of other things other than doing that. So I think that a lot of the, a lot of the things that I learned from this is that you want to have just financial agility. You don't know what's going to happen, 
but you want to have the ability to move very rapidly and in multiple directions, no matter what does happen. And you want to have things in place so that, you know, you're not surprised that you're not a deer in the headlights when something happens. And so what are some of those things? Um, I think that we've since talked to our CFO and other CFOs. I guess the first is uh, to have more than one, more than one bank account, right? Yeah. And I think it's sort of a lot for seed capital. It's hard to say have three bank accounts, but I think we're saying two to three bank accounts of which one is probably one of the major four. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're in SVB or in First Republic or in a bank normally associated with Silicon Valley, you'd probably like to have money in an uncorrelated bank uh, so that, you know, they don't fail at the same time or have difficulties at the same time. Yeah. Another way to put it is maybe you keep your operational cash separate from your excess cash because then you will always be testing those connections. And that way, you know, you can really think about how do you diversify your excess cash, whether it's through these cash sweep accounts or money markets. You know, I'm not a financial expert, so it's hard for me to say what is the right answer. Um, but it feels like having those two accounts be separate could actually be quite helpful. The other thing I think that I learned from this in terms of agility is you want to have the connections between the banks pre-wired, right? You don't want to be, you got to move your money really fast and you're figuring out your password for online and the person who has authorization to do a wire isn't there and you, you, you just like caught totally flat footed you want to be in a position where you can just instantly react. If you want to move money from point A to point B, the wiring instructions are available. You've tested it in the past, but like you just, you just spring into action. You know, you're just mentally going through the checklist of point A to point B, where to put your money. Yeah. Cause I mean, I think it's unfair to expect a, a founder to search for product market fit. And do all of the work that's involved with that and then be a financial expert on the banking institutions and cash management and not have a CFO. And so all of these requirements that we're suddenly placing on top of the founder, I think, is almost impossible. And so providing some simple rules by which you know the board can say, hey, we have fine governance um, and we're minimizing risk is basically all we can ask for. Yeah. And, and some of the, some of the discussion that I probably disagree with is kind of this direction of, well, you know, you're the CEO of a company. You should just be good enough at financial management or somebody in the VC in the boardroom ought to be, you know, the arbiter of risk management and know all that stuff. Uh, I see why people think that, but for me, um, it's more about, creating the conditions where it's not a catastrophe if something goes wrong. It's like you got more things to worry about than this. And so just create a durable solution that allows you to move with agility almost no matter what happens. Right. And you have to be reasonable about the risks that we're taking on. I mean, you could technically say like the dollar will fail, right? And so you should have, you know, your your cash should be diversified across many countries. And like at some point you have to say, we have to believe in some things and minimize the risk, but some risks are unlikely to happen. And so uh, the juice isn't worth a squeeze. Yeah. And I think that much of what we saw are lessons that any founder can learn. And great founders don't look at a crisis from the lens of who's to blame for it. Why did it happen? Great founders turn a crisis into their advantage. They create conditions where they can just be better and smarter the next time. So the other thing I saw was 
some tremendously effective crisis communication from some of these founders. And uh, this is a hard thing to get right. But when when you do and when you have a plan in place before it happens, you just move with so much more confidence and precision. Yeah, I think one of the things that in terms of communication is that there's sort of the outward communication. What are you going to say to your customers, to the public? There's also what are you going to say to your employees? What are you going to say to your investors and board members? And maybe those are very different messages, but you have to have some level of transparency on all of those different dimensions. And so how to think about that's quite complex when you're living through a crisis. I think we have some ideas about communicating in a crisis, but we also are lucky enough to be pretty good friends with uh, what I would call one of the gurus of marketing just in general, in particular, this type of thing. Who's The cowboy of crisis communication. Yes. Uh, the, the, the godfather of category design, uh, Christopher Lockhead. So we thought we'd have him on uh, to give us his perspective. Hey, Christopher. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. I'm uh, glad to be here. I'm sorry to be here under these circumstances, but I always love working with you. So Christopher, I I think you've had your fair share of uh, some crisis communication situations. Just wondering what what kind of war stories you might be able to share about that. Yeah. When have you as the CMO been foist, had a situation foisted on you where it was a crisis and you had to just deal with it no matter no matter the consequences? Yeah, I've, I've dealt with it twice. Um, once back in the dot-com bomb and then once later in an even more dramatic way with a uh, government investigation that ended up with having a certain executives in jail and putting the company through a truly existential threat. And we got investigated by the uh, uh, SEC and we had an internal investigation running simultaneously. And so uh, if you've never been investigated by the SEC, hey, I got to tell you, it's a blast. So Lockhead, I know you oftentimes say over communicate, don't hide. What exactly does that mean? Don't hide. Well, you actually um, you actually can't play forward that much like you would normally if you were planning out how to build a product or how to design a new category or how to scale a go-to-market or sales organization, et cetera, et cetera, the kinds of things that executives are used to being able to plan forward on because in a situation, in a crisis situation, particularly one that involves the government and, and radical amounts of uncertainty, you can't do that. And so you have to go to first principles and first principles are we're going to be radically transparent and we're going to communicate radically because if you don't communicate, people assume bad things. And it is far more powerful to say, this is exactly what we know. And then when you say it, no whipped cream on the dog shit, just tell them the facts. This is exactly what we know at this moment in time. And then if they ask questions, if you're doing that or whatever it is, you may not know very much. And this is what stops a lot of executives from talking is they say, well, we we don't really know anything. But your absence in a moment of crisis speaks so loudly. So and so your presence also speaks so loudly. And even if you can't say very much, you can say, listen, we are all over this thing. Here's what we know. There's a whole lot that we don't know, and we're going to over-communicate with you. And listen, we will get through this. And be radically transparent is feels related to that, too. And 
one of the things that I wonder there is it's easy for someone like Christopher for you to be very, very radically transparent. I think that's just in your personality. But especially when you're running scared, how do you actually tap into that part of you to be you know, overly transparent? How do you do that? Look, I, I know this might not be a popular statement today, but I believe as a leader, you have um, committed yourself to be there when it counts. And crisis reveals and builds character. And you have to make the decision what kind of leader you're going to be. And this is where our core values get tested. One of the lenses that we tried to um, to use in a crisis situation is how will we feel about what we did in this moment in 50 years or 30 years? And the other one was, if we were the receiver of this information or communication, how would we perceive it? How would we want to be treated? Because it, it makes it so much worse when you try to spin it. It makes it so much worse when you try to withhold information. So much worse. Uh, this, this, you can't control these things. So the only thing you can do is literally be a good person. What would a legendary person in this situation do? And look, we're not always, we don't always make the exact right decision, of course, but we, we can know at the time we were trying to pressure test ourselves and our intention, you know, as Elvis Costello said, our aim was true. There's one other thing to know that's really interesting here. Expect that certain people, often people that you'd never expect, will melt. I've seen some of the most high-powered, big names in Silicon Valley, big, tough executives. In the room when it happens, you look at them, and they just kind of collapse, and they're done. Just expect that there will be some people who the pressure will get to a place where they won't be able to take it. You know, every, every crisis like this I've been a part of, there is a moment where you and maybe more broadly uh, on, the, on the leadership team or across parts of the company or the whole company feels like there is no effing chance this is going to work. Just keep going. The option is to stop or keep going. I also like this idea of being radically human. Uh, because that that feels like in in a crisis mode, it's probably you know there's there's a lot that you're trying to cover up and you're trying to be superhuman. But here you're saying be radically human. Like what exactly does that mean? When there's a crisis in business, let's just be clear: business is personal. We we spend an inordinate amount of our time doing what we do. We have deep relationships that we form. And it's a huge part of our identity for many people, maybe not for everybody, but for many people. And of course, it's our livelihoods. And some families have one breadwinner. And so this is about them. You're their leader, servant leadership, right? In times of crisis, leaders lead from the front and they focus on the needs of others. That's what we need to see here. And I've seen great leaders do it. And it it's incredible. And I've seen executive teams and, and, and been part of executive teams that have come together in these incredible moments of crisis. When you're going to have a tough conversation about a bad place that the company is in um, that has to be dealt with for one reason or another, 
of any spin on it at all is going to make it sound worse. And on the radically human part, we got to remember these are people's lives. So, Anne, I guess we've now kind of covered the three topics. Maybe it's good to summarize. Lesson one, scenario planning, yeah, uh, which involves identifying future outcomes that are out of your control, identifying options that are in your control, mapping them out and not hoping for the best, but understanding what your response would be with each choice in each scenario. That's right. Second lesson, financial agility. It's not about becoming a financing expert. It's about putting in place different accounts, paths between the accounts, so that you can react to almost any conditions, no matter when they occur, how they occur. But agility is the key. Yeah. Uh, the ability to be resilient in any circumstances, no matter how unpredictable. And finally, crisis communication, where the legendary guru, Christopher Lockhead, helped us have a four-step plan. Number one, over-communicate. Don't hide. Number two, be radically transparent. Tell people what you know, what you don't know, and what you're doing to get answers to what you don't know. Focus on the facts. No happy talk. Number three, be radically human. Business is personal. Address people like they're people. Help them understand that you see uh, what they're seeing and be ready for some people to turn into mush, but you got to go on regardless. And then finally, keep going. Keep everyone's head in the game. No scapegoating. No finger pointing. Yeah. We don't have the luxury for anyone to waste energy on that and help people understand it'll get better if you keep making forward progress. Is that right? Is that a good summary? I think that pretty much covers it. Well, thanks, Anne, for chatting with us on this special edition of the podcast. It was great having you on. Hopefully we can do it more often. Thanks for having me, Mike. This was super fun. Thanks for listening to the Starting Greatness podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or you're new to the show, I hope you listen to our past interviews with legendary founders like Reed Hoffman, Mark Andreessen, the Instagram founders, and Keith Raboy. I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And if you like the show, I'd be grateful if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter at M2JR and subscribe to our newsletter for exclusive content and events at greatness.substack.com. Until we catch up again, I hope you'll never let go of your inner power to do great things in whatever matters to you. Thank you for listening.